VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. So happy to have you with me today, as always. We have a great show for you today, something that is relevant to each and every one of us. I always try to do that on Go Green Radio, have topics and guests that talk about things that affect each and every one of our lives. And we all live somewhere. And uh, so today we're going to be talking about what is a green home. And we've had episodes on this before, and it was more about, you know, green cleaning products and kind of greening up the inside of your home and things like that. But today we're going to get down to really, literally, the brass tacks, or maybe a more eco-friendly type of tack. But we're going to be talking about the building itself and how to ensure that your home or your apartment or residential unit is built to some brand-new standards that the U.S. Green Building Council came out with just very recently. We're going to be talking to one of the people who helped to write those standards, truly an industry expert. His name is Peter Yost, and I'm very excited to have him on today. Um, Peter is uh, hes actually with greenbuilding.com. If you want to open another window as you listen to Voice America dot com as we do the interview today. If you want to open another window and go to greenbuilding.com, you're going to find Peter and his colleagues there. But not only that, Peter serves as an instructor for the Boston Architectural College's Sustainable Design Certificate Program, and he's also an adjunct facility member of the University of Massachusetts Department of Building Materials and Wood Technology Program there in Amherst. Um, He's been building, he's been researching, teaching, and writing and consulting on high-performance homes for more than 20 years, and we are so excited to have him on today. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Peter. Glad to have you. Thanks so much, Jill. It's great to be here. Well, I typically warm up my guests by starting with a little get-to-know-you segment about uh, some of the personal questions that, you know, brought things that brought you into going green and all of these types of things, but I'm really anxious to get right down to what caused me to invite you on the show today. And that was an article that you wrote for the recent issue of Green Source Magazine, which my listeners know I'm a huge fan of the magazine. And you wrote an opinion piece at the very end of the magazine. I read it cover to cover. And it was called Sustainability Requires Durability. And for the benefit of our Go Green listeners, here was your opening paragraph. Green buildings must be durable buildings. If you double the life of a building, no matter what the building's made of, you have the environmental impact of its construction. But aren't we building durable green buildings? Too often the answer is no, and too often the problem is moisture. Peter, talk to our listeners about this issue, and keep in mind that many of us are all the same. We're pretty much laymen in the understanding of green buildings, so talk to that issue for us. Sure. The, uh, when most people think about green building, and I, I'm talking both about building professionals and consumers, uh, they tend to think of products. You know, what type of flooring is in the building? Or I get this question a lot. You know, is it better to have a wood-framed home or a steel-framed home or a concrete block home? And, you know, the real answer is, well, each of those systems have advantages. But um, the greater question is, how long will they last? We invest a huge amount of energy and resources to build a home. And the best way that we can honor that those resources what we call sort of the embodied energy of those buildings, is to protect them as best we can. So if you have a house that lasts 100 years, 
as opposed to a house that lasts 50 years, it, it doesn't matter whether it was made out of wood or concrete or steel. You've taken all that in, environmental impact of the wood, the steel, or the concrete block, and you've halved it because you've made it last twice as long. Um, so it's, it, it's interesting because we tend to focus on products when we talk about green building, and what we're really talking about is process as well. Um, but process isn't nearly as exciting to talk about usually as products. But that's, that's the theme of that, uh, that piece was that we need to make our homes last longer to protect the environmental investment we've made in them. Well, and it makes perfect sense because even if you think about products, and this is sometimes easier for consumers to wrap their head around, if you buy something that's going to last longer, the, the ultimate waste, is less. Like, for instance, if you, if you purchase a car and it only lasts for five years and then it breaks down, even if it has zero emissions, because you're going to have to junk that car and buy another one, you've actually created waste because it takes energy to create that car. It takes space for that junked car to go to. Um, and so it's so much the better that you have a fuel-efficient car that also lasts for 15 years, I'm driving a 10-year-old minivan, and I've had it smog-checked every year. My emissions are great, and it's fuel-efficient for a minivan. But a lot of folks will say, geez, Jill, you know, that's like all dented up. It's 10 years old. What are you doing? And I said, you know, it's running well. It's running efficiently. If I send this to a landfill and buy a new one, I'm actually going to create more waste than if I just keep my car until it isn't usable anymore. And the same thing, I think, is true of what you're talking about with homes, I mean, durability is a huge issue. And, and I think it's really interesting that, to me, it was surprising that that was even something that you had to write about. It seems like a no-brainer. But in your article, you talk about the new LEED standards for home, and you mention that it is the only green building program in the country to have mandatory requirements for both durability planning and durability management. And I suspect that's true because you probably helped to ensure those requirements were part of the program. But tell our listeners about these durability requirements, why they make the LEED standards for homes unique, and perhaps most interesting, why these durability standards aren't part of other green building standards. Sure. The, um, the reason that we push so hard to get LEED for homes to not only recognize durability as a credit within the system, but a mandatory requirement, um, is that uh, we were attracted by the fact that the LEED Canada program does have a credit related to durability. And it's been a bit of a controversial credit because if you say that a building is going to last, you know, 100 years and it doesn't, well, whose responsibility is that? Is it the architect or the engineer or, you know, the builder? So there are some liability issues that make durability sort of a scary topic um, uh, for the building community. But the, the, the... uh, Canadian system is built on a, a Canadian Standards Association standard called S-478. So the groundwork was already sort of laid for this, at least in commercial buildings with the, the Canadian uh, LEED uh, system. And so we used that quite a bit to sort of weave it in uh, to a residential perspective to the LEED for Homes program. Um, but we wanted to make sure that uh, within the system we had a way of protecting that environmental investment. And you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, uh, people, one of the problems with durability in homes is that if the average home ownership length is 7 to 10 years, well, people, even though we're, built, we're all building things that we know are supposed to be very durable products, 
the financial system is not set up to make us as conscious of that aspect of the building's performance as it is for energy efficiency or indoor air quality or water efficiency. So we have a bit of a disconnect between the way that we finance and, and uh, sort of amortize homes as opposed to the, their environmental impact. So the, the, the financial system and its um, uh, relationship to the way that we buy and sell homes, it plays into this uh, too. That's an interesting point. That's a really interesting point because, you know, my grandparents, when they built their home, they meant to stay there till the day that they died. And you're right. That isn't the American culture these days. We tend to turn over real estate. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. Now, this is what really struck me about your article, Peter, and why I really wanted to have you on the show. You know, we all hope that the economic situation that we're in right now is going to wane soon and that the housing industry will rebound. And when it does, and I say when because I'm an I'm a eternal optimist, when it does, we have a growing cadre of consumers who are really, really anxious to be green in all that they do and all that they buy. And I guess my concern is that when they go and buy a home or when local government officials are setting ordinances around green residential building, they may not realize the difference between a green home that's constructed of eco-friendly materials that's super energy efficient and a green home that's all those things and built to last. Talk to us a little bit more, I mean, in real terms and data points that we can understand about the environmental impact of green homes that are built to be optimally durable. Yeah, I think the tricky thing is that um, we tend to associate uh, first cost with the way to evaluate buildings, you know, and, and oftentimes it's a number like, well, tell me how much that home is in dollars per square foot. And what's fascinating to me is that we don't buy any durable goods that way. You, you, you don't go into a car dealer and say, well, how much is that car per pound? Um, True. And so, you know, if you, if, you, if you think of a home as a high-performance item, like you do your car or your stereo or your computer, then it changes the whole equation because when we talk about those durable products, which, by the way, never last as long as buildings do, um, <laughs> It's always about the long-term value. It's about how is this going to deliver services to me over time. Um, So one way to look at this is that how did the car industry make durability an issue um, that they could translate into market share and value? Well, they started to do warranties, and they started to warranty certain parts of, like, the drivetrain, and then maybe they warrantied the engine. Well, now there are certain car companies, they warranty the whole bloody thing. And so what they're doing is they're, they're translating the inherent durability value of the product into something that plays in the marketplace. And I think the building industry is going to have to learn this technique. They're going to have to have a way of uh, translating the long-term value of a home into something that plays in the marketplace. I mean, wouldn't it be interesting if a builder said, when you buy this home, I'm going to guarantee the maintenance costs for the first five to ten years. Whoa. Wow, yeah, that's, that's, that's unheard huge. of, right? That would Automobile be dealer, auto, Automated manufacturers do that, right? Right. Gosh, so, that's, that's a really interesting thought, Peter. I mean, it, honestly, I've never thought about it that way. And I think that, that that's one of those aha moments we get every so often on Go Green Radio when we really have a guest who, who has a different perspective. But that's a really interesting concept, a home warranty. You know, I mean, wouldn't insurance companies love something like that as well? I mean, 
do you, do you foresee somebody, some organization or industry taking the lead on something like that? Well, I, I do because um, we have some precedents set in the from the energy perspective. There are um, certain builders and certain programs that provide energy bill guarantees with the homes. And the thing I like about this is that um, we all respond to performance-based information. So, it, you know, how do you make sure that something is built to be energy efficient or built to last? Well, you guarantee it. And then everybody in the chain from the architect to the specifier to the actual builder, they have to support the process that delivers either energy efficiency or durability because somebody's dollars are riding on it. So I think it's not long before, um, and especially in difficult times, you know, builders are looking to distinguish themselves. Um, I think that we're going to see more of these types of performance guarantees woven into the contract for homes simply because it's a, it's a great market advantage. But you have to put your money where your mouth is. That is so true. Boy, that's an interesting concept. And I'm actually going to be talking to some builders um, at a conference that I'm going to be at this weekend. You can bet I'm going to bend their ear on that one. Well, Peter, we're going to go to a quick break here. Folks, you're not going to want to go away. We're going to be back with Peter next segment right after these commercial breaks. So come right back for more Go Green Radio in just a moment. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Now, Mrs. Johnson, before we close on your mortgage loan, I want to make sure you remember Mike. Hi. You can trust me. I'm African-American, just like you. So here's the low monthly payments and interest rates we promised, and here's where they triple. The rest of this stuff is just here to make sure that we get your house when you can't pay us back. What a lovely house. Predatory lenders are never this easy to spot. Call us at 866-222-FAIR and protect yourself with the facts. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Fair Housing Alliance and the Ad Council. Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST. 
4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people, but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We are so excited to have Peter Yawson with us. He is with, and I made a mistake last segment, not green building. He is with buildinggreen.com. So open another window um, in your browser, and while we're talking, while you're listening to voiceamerica.com, open another window and check out www.buildinggreen.com, and that's where you'll find Peter. Now, Peter, for those of you who are just joining us, was one of the industry experts who helped create the U.S. Green Building Council's brand-new standards for green homes, green residential units. It's called LEED. Of course, a lot of us are familiar with LEED standards for, um, for other types of structures, but this is a brand-new LEED for Homes um, program. Peter, welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'm thrilled to have you. Good to be back. Well, I want to backtrack just a little bit, help our listeners understand a little bit more about you and, and how you got into the position that you are in right now where you're considered a really leading expert in the building industry. I, I looked at your resume, and I found that your undergraduate degree is in agronomy, and I'm not ashamed to say I had to Wikipedia that. <laughs> I did not know what that was. Tell our listeners a little bit about your undergraduate interest and how that helped to lay the groundwork for the work that you currently do. Well, you know, it's, it's really funny because uh, when after I was uh, uh, done with school for a while and was working with my brother as a builder, working with my brothers as, as builders, you know, whenever we uh, got to a tough problem, we would look at each other and say, well, there goes 12 years of college down the drain. Um, <laughs> so, because we all had degrees in fields completely unrelated to building. But, you know, I, I was interested in agronomy, which is soil science, because, um, uh, you know, I'd spent a lot of times as a kid, you know, in the woods and uh, uh, really wanted to understand how uh, ecological systems work. Now, what's kind of funny about this is that I never thought I'd use my agronomy background in uh, building, but when I was at the NEHB Research Center working on uh, a grant with EPA for construction waste management, it actually turned out that my background in agronomy 
led to us coming up with ways to recycle both wood and drywall on job sites because oh. you can use the drywall as a soil amendment and you can use the wood as a mulching agent. And if I hadn't had a degree in agronomy, I, I probably wouldn't have made that connection of, you know, we can handle some of the clean waste that we generate on job sites actually on the site rather than taking them to other markets. So it did pay off eventually. Yeah, that's really interesting. That is really interesting because I, I know of other projects. I mean, I live in California where they talk about those kinds of issues, and it's kind of neat to talk to the person who, who you know, started it all. That's, that's really cool. Now, you taught high school biology for a few years. Mm-hmm. Tell us the truth. Which is tougher, dealing with high school students or environmentalists? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I deal with environmentalists every day, and I have a high school daughter, and I think, hmm, sometimes I think the high schoolers are a whole lot easier. But, you know, that's a matter of opinion. But how did the experience of, of teaching school shape the work that you do today? Yeah, well, it, it, you know, the, the really interesting thing about teaching, particularly high school, and I've taught, you know, from high school up to the college level, is that um, kids need real consistency. They like things to be systematic, and they like to have rules in the way they do their work. But when you're teaching, you also want kids to be creative. So, and sometimes people think that, you know, oh, I'm a creative person, but I'm not real good at following rules, or, hey, I'm a practical person, but I'm not very creative. And just as in teaching high school biology, it's the same on the job site. You know, we we tend to do things on the job site as builders the way we were taught. My my brothers and I built homes the same way that my oldest brother's father-in-law who was a uh, French-Canadian builder, had been taught by his father to build things. So we like, you know, we followed the rules. But really, on the job site, you, you have to be creative as well. I mean, the builders that I have the most respect for are the ones that know how to do the nitty-gritty details absolutely perfectly while they're also looking for a better way to do something. And that's an interesting blend. So when we talk about teaching, whether it be high school students or other building professionals, that balance between creativity and sticking to the system, that's a balance that we all need to have to be really good at our work. You know what, and I think, Peter, that is true in so many fields. And it, 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 it bears repeating because I think you've really touched on a kernel of truth. It, it, there's nothing like, and I learned this even when I was in the military. I'm a former naval officer. And the best leaders that I had, the best commanding officers, were the ones who would explain the mission to us, and then, you know, they, they, they trained us, they trained us and trained us, and then when they explained the objective of the mission and then let us come up with a way to do it, knowing all of the, you know, the things that we, the requirements and the policies that we had to follow, but then allowing us a little bit of human ingenuity and creativity to, to engage our brain in a new way besides just immediate obedience to orders, those were the times when the missions were accomplished far and away more successfully than if we had just been mindlessly following orders or going by the training manuals. And so I think that in a lot of the things that we're seeing in this new green economy that's emerging, I think that you've really touched on something very, very important, and that is not losing. You know, we have all these standards, and that is great, but that's only the framework. That isn't you know, the end-all, be-all, the creativity and the human ingenuity that have to accompany those standards like you've developed with LEAD, I think is going to be so critically important and also what makes the work exciting and, and fun for the people who are doing it. So I think that's really, 
that's a really good good thought. Now, while we're speaking about schools, because I got to thinking about this when I was um, coming up with the questions for you today. You know, you taught high, in high school. But I went back to your article, and you were talking about this interplay between energy efficiency in green buildings and moisture control, and how you know it used to be that we didn't worry as much about moisture control because you know we'd have the heat blasting, and that would you know blast through the building and sort of dry it out if there was any moisture held in. But now, with our focus on energy efficiency and cramming as much insulation into the buildings as possible we tend to have some moisture control issues, which can certainly affect the durability. But one of my concerns is that when we're talking about schools, um, you know, I've seen firsthand the devastating health effects that mold can have in schools and that, that hurts children's health, even teachers' health. Um, and I have three kids in public schools, and I know that the U.S. Green Building Council has begun a LEED certification program for schools. And a lot of folks are hoping that this new federal uh, stimulus package will in some money to build green schools, but as parents in communities where these schools may be built, what do we need to know or ensure that our schools are not only green, but healthy and durable in terms of moisture control? Sure. You know, the uh, I'm not as familiar with the LEED programs that are not residentially based, but I do know that I do know some of the building professionals that are working on those standards. And, you know, this, this weave between energy efficiency, moisture control, and indoor air quality, um, the LEED suite of programs does a really good job of tying these together. Now, just because one of the programs within the suite does not, does not have at least currently durability standards woven in, um, they do have a lot of connection between the indoor air quality credits and the energy credits. And the main mantra is manage energy and moisture with equal intensity. I mean, that's the whole key to all of this. If you're going to manage energy more carefully, you have to manage moisture more carefully. And so I'm confident that the folks that I know that are actively engaged in the development of the LEED certification for schools fully recognize that, that relationship between energy efficiency, indoor air quality, and durability. And, um, you know, I don't know if it's going to have a durability credit or a, or a prerequisite, which, of course, is mandatory woven into it. But I do know that they fully recognize these relationships among um, the different parts of green building. That's good to know. That's good to know because I know that a lot of schools, and that's what I do with my nonprofit organization every day, is work with schools across the country. And when the Go Green initiative goes into schools, that is one of the things that we're talking about is taking a look at LEED certification for any remodeling or reconstruction that schools may be doing. And I know that, that a lot of state and, and local government agencies who would be financing um, school remodeling and construction are also looking at that. So it's good to know that those standards are, you know, trustworthy in that regard because, you know, we certainly don't want to build brand new, you know, green schools but then have them moldy. That would be a, that would be a bad thing. So I'm glad to hear you say that. Now, we've got a couple minutes before break and I want to go back to you and your resume. Your master's degree is in resource economics from the University of New Hampshire. What made you choose that particular degree program and how is that interfacing with the work that you do today, Peter? Yeah, the, when I uh, went back to school after being away for a number of years, because um, I, you know, I had a health problem that meant I couldn't work on the job site anymore, but um, the resource economics department at the University of New Hampshire, this funny story, um, the guy that I ended up working with had the same uh, professor that headed his Ph.D. committee as had headed my master's committee when I was down at the uh, down at Virginia Tech 
in uh, Blacksburg, Virginia. So that was the kind of the link that pulled me into the resource economics department. But the other thing is that I really wanted to work on resource economics topics related to the construction industry. So I actually developed a recycling program as part of my graduate work for uh, a $255 million gypsum drywall manufacturing plant where we set up a system to pull waste drywall off of job sites back to the plant for blending into the uh, the new drywall. So that's I kind of did that because um, I really wanted to stay working on construction issues. That is really cool. And some of the things that you did um, are, are becoming sort of industry standard slowly but surely, but, I mean, just the thought of sort of recycling, uh, you know, the waste from a, from a construction site is pretty innovative. And uh, it's exciting to talk to you, Peter, and we're going to have you back right after the break. Folks, don't go away. We've got more Go Green Radio with Peter Yost, who's with us to talk about green homes. So be, come back right after the commercial break, and if you want to call in, here's our number, 866-472-5788. We'll be back in just a moment. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. No excuses, no delays. If you have goals you want to achieve or changes you need to make, then it's time to take charge of your life with America's change buddy, Nancy Christie. This show will help you lead a more productive and fulfilling life starting now. Take Charge of Your Life challenges you to expand your sense of possibilities. Take Charge of Your Life with Nancy Christie is broadcast live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America. Let change be a positive force in your life. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to more Go Green Radio. I am so glad you're joining us. If you are just starting with us on the show today, um, you are in for a treat. We have Peter Yost with us. He is one of those guru types. But you know what? Sometimes I find that the technocrats in the world can't talk to us normal people about what it means to really go green. But Peter is not like that. Peter has been sharing his wisdom with us in a very understandable way. He is one of the folks who helped to write the U.S. Green Building Council's brand new standards 
for green homes or green residential units. And, and he's really given us a few kernels of truth and, and some really neat ideas. He's a real innovative guy, and we're really glad to have him on Go Green Radio. If you have questions for Peter, don't be shy. We're nice. We're easy. We're fun here. Give us a call. And I just gave our number before the break. Here it is again. It's one 472 And I know that Peter and I would both love to hear from you. Peter, welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'm so glad you're here today. Me too. Thanks. Now, Peter, you are currently the Director of Residential Services for Building Green. And, folks, if you want to open another window while you're listening to voiceamerica.com on your Internet, open another browser window and go to www.buildinggreen.com. Peter, tell our listeners about Building Green and what you do as the Director of Residential Services. Well, for about 18 years now, Building Green um, has been uh, publishing a uh, monthly newsletter called Environmental Building News, and it's always covered both residential and commercial buildings. And so when you read that publication, if you're a home builder and the lead articles on elevators, you know, your interest sort of wanes a little bit. Um, <laughs> so, so when green buildings started to take off, you know, about 2000, 2001, we began to think about splitting um, and covering commercial buildings exclusively in one publication or information resource and covering home building or green home building in another. And so that's what I do. I've, I've been working on a new product called uh, www.greenbuildingadvisor.com, um, and it's totally focused on home building. And when we developed that tool, you know, a lot of people in the building industry think of green building as something you sort of stick on the end of a project. Mm-hmm. And um, there's so many sources of information out there. We wanted to develop a resource that that was integral to the home building process. So this website that we developed, in addition to being really comprehensive, um, has aspects of it that allow you to treat it as a tool. For example, we have a 1,000 um, construction details that you can actually download, put into a project file, and then share those files with members of your team, like your framing contractor or your HAC contractor, even the homeowner you're working with or the building inspector. And so we don't think of greenbuildingadvisor.com as just an information resource. We think of it as a tool. Because mm-hmm. you've talked about how you know, the real way to make green home building flourish is to make it practical. Well, the same can be true for the tools we use. Um, you know, a lot of builders out there are either pretty intimidated or pretty jaded about what green building means. And so we've tried real hard with greenbuildingadvisor.com to make it something that builders understand and that they can use every day because they trust it. Um, you know, we developed the product in partnership with Taunton Press, which for 30 years have been publishing fine home building. Most builders know fine home building. It's a longstanding sort of quality how-to uh, publication and so we partnered with them because we wanted greenbuildingadvisor.com to really be nuts and bolts about how to do things right. Well, and that's a great resource. Not too long ago, we had a guest on Go Green Radio who was, was building a new home, and she wanted it to be green and healthy. And at that point, she was a lawyer, very well-educated woman, but you know, at the end of the day, she was a concerned mom. And she really had trouble finding a builder who knew what she meant when she said, I want a green home. And she ended up, this was several years ago, she ended up being sort of her own general contractor and directing every last little piece from what kind of, 
you know, caulk was used to what type of flooring to what, how, how the structure was situated on the land to get maximum sunlight. I mean, all these things. And she had to learn it from scratch. So knowing that there's a tool out there, even as, as a homeowner, um, to, to kind of guide the process, if you really want to ensure that your home is green and you can feel good about it, that's, that's a great resource. And how long did it take you guys to develop that? <laughs> well, that, yeah, it took us about 12 solid months of actual de- website development, and then there was about six months before that. So we, you know, we, we were... Um, quite anxious, frankly, to get the product out quickly, but we knew that to make it comprehensive and high quality, we really had to take, you know, a full year to develop it. Um, you know, we also, as part of that, we have a green building primer. And when I talk to builders about how to use greenbuildingadvisor.com, one of the things that's a really important thing to do at the beginning of any remodeling job or, or, or new construction job is to make sure that your definition of green building is the same as your client's because quite often the builder has one idea about what green building is, and the client has something, another definition that's completely different. And to, to discover that difference part of the way down the construction process rather than from the beginning is a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can use the primer as either a homeowner or a uh, building professional to make sure you're on the same page with your um, client. You know, I get this question all the time, you know, what's the difference between greenwashing and actual green building? And the real answer is that green building is a spectrum. There, there are very few things in life that are completely black or white. Right. So, you know, can you build a light green as opposed to a deep green home? Sure you can. And to me, the people who should establish the definition are the two folks working on it, the builder or the architect and the homeowner. I mean, when it comes right down to it, those are the two people that have to be on the same page. Now, does it help to have a program like NEHB's Green Building Program or USGBC's Lead for Homes? Absolutely it does. But at the end of the day, those programs don't mean nearly as much as making sure that you delivered the product to the client that they wanted and the client feels that they got a builder or an architect they could trust who was well-versed enough in the systems to give them the shade of green that they wanted. I love that. I love that because you know what? So many folks are sort of black and white in their thinking on this. And and even if you're talking about a citywide recycling program or a school composting program, again, I agree with you entirely, and I, I talk to my clients' schools all the time about this, that it's it's a continuum, it's a spectrum, um, like you said. And, and, you know, moving along that continuum is better than saying, wow, the end of the continuum is too hard to get to, so I'm just going to stay where I'm at. Moving in, in steps towards some ultimate, you know, deep shade of green is great, but, but I think it's important to recognize that it's okay to, to move along that continuum in a, in a pace that's comfortable um, and is affordable and all the other variables that go into to building. Now, Peter, I want to ask you, because I, I ask these kinds of questions of a lot of my guests because I like to get um, our guests sort of vision of the world. And so if buildinggreen.com and greenbuildingadvisor.com, if these two entities meet their goals, objectives, your mission, what do you see the net effect being in 5, 10, or even 50 years? How do you think that the industry, or more importantly, our communities might be transformed for the better if you realize your mission? Well, there's two things there. One is we we joke at uh, greenbuildingadvisor.com that our goal is to ultimately switch the name to buildingadvisor.com. In other words, eventually if we have really low 
environmental impact building, we can just drop the word green because everybody's going to be building that way. That's right. So, you know, we, we actually went out and looked at the URL for buildingadvisor.com to make sure that we could buy it because, you know, there will come a time when it will be redundant to say green building. Mm-hmm. It's just the way that everybody's going to be building. Um, I think the other thing, too, is that we, you know, all of us tend to compartmentalize. We try to think, you know, I have to have a green car, I have to have a green home, I would like to have a green job, and they're all connected. So, you know, where you live and how you get around has as much to, uh, bearing on your total environmental impact as the building you live in. So I think that um, right now we, trend, we tend to treat these topics as separate, you know, green building, green living, um, uh, green products, green cars, but we're, we're coming to a point where because of the sheer number of people um, on our planet Earth that we're going to have to start to connecting all these things and weaving together the way that we buy things, the way that we build things, um, you know, how we get around. So I think in 50 years we'd like to see um, all of these topics more integrated. So it's not separate topics about green building and green living. They're, they're woven together. I love that. I, I think that's exactly the way that it should be put. I think that's a really, really visionary um, and, and a really um, inclusive um, concept that you just articulated there because I think a lot of folks um, right now are seeing silos. They're seeing, like you said, green building, uh, green public policy, green products. Um, and I really do think that in as much as we are systemic, holistic beings, I think that this lifestyle and, and, you know, the public policy that goes along with it and the jobs and the economy that goes along with it, I think that integration of those silos is where we really have to get to because otherwise we simply won't be able to support separate silos for all of these things. I mean, the supply chain issues that are involved in various products and, and um, you know, the things that we purchase within those silos um, have all got to come toward that, that more sustainable um, you know, standard of, of, of operating. Absolutely. Now, a lot of people saw your picture on our online promotion of today's show. They saw kids in the background behind you. Are you a dad, Peter? I certainly am. <laughs> <laughs> and how do the children in your life affect your work and, and your kind of personal modus vivendi for the outcome of the work that you're doing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I have a favorite picture of my two daughters, Katie and May, that are we took with my mother, and, um, you know, my mother grew up, um, she was a young mother during World War II, um, you know, as a young adult, she went through the Depression, and, um, I, you know, I sadly, I think in some ways there's some possibility that my mother and my daughters will have more in common with each other than with me, in that um, I think there's going to be the potential for scarcity of resources and some tough times. Um, my generation grew up, you know, pretty much with the, 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 the world on a platter, and I think we're going to have to figure out ways to, you know, be a lot more efficient about that platter. So um, my kids are the whole reason I do everything. I mean, I, I want them to have all the great things that I had both as a kid and as an adult, and I think we're going to have to work hard to, to, to make sure that we pass that on to them. I mean, we're really lucky people. I mean, we... We, uh, we have a lot of things at our fingertips, but we have to be careful that we honor the past generations and honor the, you know, the needs and aspirations of the next generation, too. 
Well, I think you're right, and I feel the same way. I've got three kids, and um, oftentimes I even take them along with me when I give speeches or, you know, visit schools and, and talk to folks about going green. And and I, I really, I fear the same things, and I hate to use the word fear because I am, you know, an internal optimist, but I do think that, you know, if we if we watch the trends as they are, there could be some scarcity of resources. But the good news is that we have moms and dads like you and I, Peter, and, and all the listeners. I know that a bunch of our Go Green Radio listeners are parents, and we're really trying to make a difference right now, today. And um, I really salute you for what you're doing. And don't go away, folks. We're going to have more with Peter Yost. He's going to be with us right after the break. If you would like to call in, please do so if you want to email us, gogreenradio at gmail.com. We will be right back after these commercial breaks. Don't go away. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Hi, my name is Aaron, and I'm a survivor of mannequinism. Mannequinism is basically when you turn into a hard plastic shell. They say it's from not being politically active. For me, it started when I didn't register to vote, and then I stopped volunteering, and before I knew it, I wasn't doing anything. And that's when I found a small patch of plastic on my right shoulder. Protect yourself from mannequinism. Log on to fightmannequinism.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Do you know what the most complex piece of your business capital investment is? Is it the technology? Is it the infrastructure? Could it be the office and corporate structure? The most complex piece of your business capital investment is the human being. Return on Human Capital is a unique program that discusses some of the most important issues facing leaders in business. Join your hosts, Howard Pines and Jay Santamaria, for Return on Human Capital, Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We are having a great time today. We have an awesome guest. All my guests are awesome. You know I only bring you the best, Go Green Radio listeners. Um, but we have Peter Yost with us today, and he was one of the folks who helped create the brand-new U.S. Green Building Council standards 
for green homes. A lot of us, well, we all live somewhere, and we want to know what makes a home or a residence green. And, you know, there are a lot of people with opinions on that, but not a lot of people qualified to answer that question as an industry expert. I'm bringing you the guy who can answer that question best. Peter, thanks for being with us on Go Green Radio today. Well, thank you. Now, let's return to this issue of durability because that was really what caused me to email you and say, please come on my radio show. Your article in Green Source Magazine that really caught my attention was called Sustainability Requires Durability. Here's why this really piqued my interest. To Elaine, then, the issue of durability seems like a no-brainer. But the fact that you had to write this article and had to work so hard for durability performance standards in the new LEED standards for green homes tells me I'm wrong. By virtue of the fact that you actually had to mention this in an article seems to suggest that durability must be an issue. So tell me this. Who cringes when you come in the room? I mean, whose feathers are you ruffling when you insist on durability standards? And why does that happen? I mean, I, I don't understand who would gain if those durability standards are excluded from LEED certification programs. Well, that's a great question. Um, it's interesting when you talk to builders about durability, and my good friend Ann Edmitster is a consultant from California, and she went to a presentation in San Antonio, and she was talking to the builders about durability management, and she could just tell from the tension in the room that, you know, this was not playing well. And so she sat down with a couple of the builders at a break, and she said, you know, I can tell you guys I'm not connecting. What's the story? And the neat thing is that as a result of that conversation, they said, are you really talking about quality? Because we understand quality, but this durability thing, you're kind of scaring us, you know? Mm-hmm. So at the next session... She said, well, let's think of this not as durability management, but as quality management. And she said literally there was a huge sigh in the room. <laughs> oh, oh, you mean quality. Okay, yeah, we get that. So I think part of this is that um, there is this inextricable link between durability and quality of doing things right. If you, bi- if you design or specify or build something right, then it will inherently be durable. Um, y- you know, uh, and so we think, well, why isn't that as bred into the industry as, as, as a quality is. And I think part of it is that the building industry as a whole tends to think, as soon as I sell that house, I'm sort of done with it. Yeah. You know, and um, not all builders take that approach. And it's not a criticism of builders. I mean, that's the way we have the system set up. Mm-hmm. But L.L. Bean is a company I think we're probably all familiar with. And I have a friend who works in research and development. And I was talking to him one day, and he said, you know, if, if someone sends us back um, a boot that they bought at L.L. Bean, we don't care how old it is. We'll take it back and we'll send them a brand-new pair of boots. I said, well, why would you do that? And they said, well, the, the, the really cool thing about getting an old boot that you've made is that you learn what, how to make it last. So mm. we figure it's worth a pair of boots because we just got a, we just got a pair of boots of ours, and now we're going to understand better how it was built and how it failed. And he said, but we'll go one better. If you send us a pair of boots that you thought were L.L. Beans, but actually weren't, and they failed, we'll still send you a brand-new pair of L.L. Bean boots. And I said, well, that's crazy. And he said, no, because the only thing more important than learning how your own boots fail is how learning how your competitors' boots fail. I love it. <laughs> so, I love so, it. So the idea is that if we start to think of homes not as a product that ends as soon as you build them, you know, one way that builders can protect themselves during a recession is to see a home as a stream of services. Not, not that your relationship with the building ends when you build it, 
but continues along the way. And we do have builders that do that. There's a guy named John Abrams, South Mountain Company, on Martha's Vineyard, and he, he does the same thing. He wants, he wants to get back into his homes five years, ten years, fifteen years down the road because he wants to learn what he did right and what he did wrong. So I think if we start to think of homes as delivering a stream of services rather than just an end product, then, you know, builders can be remodelers. You know, builders can be warranty uh, deliverers. And, and then it changes the whole relationship that the builder has with the home. That is, that is a great thought. And it's amazing that, that we don't already have that in place because, as you mentioned earlier, in the car industry, that's exactly right. how it is. I mean, I take my car back to the dealership for parts and service and oil changes and all of that. And a lot of people do. And, and I think that would build a really interesting relationship. I mean, homes and, and you know, office buildings and anything that we build, they're not uh, consumable. It's not like a builder, you know, is going to continue selling to the same people, but they could if they offered a whole suite of services like remodeling, repair, you know, redesign, and who would know better how to add on to a house than the person who built it? That's amazing. What, what a great concept. I mean, do you, do you think that that might be coming? Well, I, I do because, um, you know, we talked about silos before. Right now, you know, green building is one topic and green realty is another topic and green banking is another topic. But think about it. If you were a bank and you, uh, you, you had uh, an investment in an asset, you'd be really interested in its durability because if something happens to that home or when that home gets to be sold, you have a vested interest in its performance over the long term. So I think we think of these topics separately now, but really if we can weave together the way that homes are sold, the way that homes are bought, uh, built, and the way that homes are financed, then everybody's going to have a vested interest in that, or, or the way the homes are insured. And right now because of climate change, you know, the, the, the insurance industry is very interested in green building because they want to reduce their risk. Mm-hmm. And if you build a home that's more durable, particularly with, with respect to natural disasters, man, that's huge in their eyes. So I think that, that um, there are a number of factors that are making it so that we are going to tie together, you know, green insurance, green home building, green realtor, and green banking. That is so exciting. Gosh, Peter, I mean, you've really, really made me think about things I hadn't thought about before. In the two minutes that we have left in this episode, and Peter, you just have to come back because I have so many more questions, Um, but I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball a little bit. We're currently experiencing a situation where the value of homes in our country has dropped dramatically in many areas of the country. Do you foresee a time when homes that are built to the lead standards you just help write will actually have greater market value than those that are not? Well, you know, we're already seeing some evidence of this, of homes that are built, you know, not just under the Lead for Homes program, but other either local programs or national programs. You know, there's a, there's a green realty program in the Pacific Northwest where, um, you know, under the Earth Advantage program out of Portland or the eco-broker system that we're actually starting to see um, green attributes pop up in MLS, you know, the multiple listing services. Really? So, yes. So there's there's movement, you know, between industries to sort of start to connect these dots. That so is I, cool. I do think that we're going to see more of this as we go along because, frankly, buyers are going to start to demand it. They're, they're going to start to say, look, if I'm buying a durable product, I want to know about its durability. I love it. 
Peter, you are so on the leading edge. Thank you for joining us today on Go Green Radio. Folks, if you want to know more about what Peter's doing, please go on buildinggreen.com. We'll be back, same place, same time next week for more Go Green Radio. Have a great weekend.